Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. Happy holidays, everyone. I hope you're all having a great holiday. This is an amazing episode. Both of our guests hail from, yes, South Africa. Welcome to the show, new friend Gilly Apter. Gilly Apter is an award-winning filmmaker, TV comedy writer, and comedian from South Africa. Gilly has recently toured extensively through Europe and the UK, as well as Canada, Australia, and Norway, hosting the comedy show Story Party. In 2018, Gilly was selected by Trevor Noah to film a short special as part of his nationwide show for South Africa streaming service, Showmax. And in 2022, she filmed a special for Netflix. It's called Only Jokes allowed. You can watch both right now. It's so good to have you on the show. Also welcome to the show, a good old friend of mine, David Cow, also from South Africa. Yes, I have friends everywhere. Marina knows everyone. Isn't this true? He first gained mainstream exposure through his television comedy series, The Pure Monate Show, which he co-created and produced. He's performed in the Smirnoff International Comedy Festival, which toured from Cape Town to Durban. He's also co-created and hosted the stand-up comedy show, Blacks Only, at the Emperor's Palace been going on for almost 16 years in Joburg. And yes, guess who he booked? Yours truly, Marina Franklin. Welcome to the show, David Cow. You're our man for the month, our period. Woohoo! It's a golden episode that I'm sure you will share with friends. I want to thank all of our listeners and friends like us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's important. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast. And Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip. Donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. Special shout out to those Patreon friends. It's because of you we keep going. And now, for our golden friends, you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage. That's right, every Monday we record live. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us and be golden. Merch is available. It's the holidays. Get your t-shirts, your hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, and tank tops. They're all available at my website. Go to marinafranklin.com. Weekly on my YouTube channel, I go live with my assistant, Evelyn Frick, my wacky friend, Dave Juskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave reviews. We have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by. And sometimes we even offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. And with friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. I hear that we're wearing masks again, so mask up inside. It's the winter. It's a perfect storm. We've got RSV. We've got COVID. We've got some variants. We've got all the, all the stuff. Okay, so booster up and Black Lives Matter. Fast track to friends, maybe by the end of this, best friends. I have all the way from South, <laughs> all the way from South Africa, Gilly Apter. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. So exciting. So exciting. And I see like you have done like, I've never met you in person, but our mutual friend Autumn introduced you to me 
And she was like, you need to have her on the show. And we all love Autumn here at Friends Like Us because I've known Autumn since we both were babies. Like, you know how old I am, right? Really? So I've known Autumn forever. Yeah, because at the Comedy Cellar, Autumn always came over, performed, sang. How did you meet Autumn? You know, I was emceeing an event in Johannesburg, which was a fundraiser for something called the Hebra Kedisha, which is like the Jewish... It's like the Jewish fundraising body of South Africa and they take care of all the like, you know, the old age homes and the orphanages and, the, you know, all that stuff. And so they had a, this huge fundraiser for a conference room of 900 women and Autumn was the guest. She performed and she not only performed, she was like the guest of honor and came, performed and told her story. Um, she came with her, you know, her husband and her mom and really just, it's funny because I, it's almost like she didn't, ju not, that, not that performing is not enough, but the fact that it's hard to just put it down to performing. She really came and like shared herself, like in a really big way, yes. in a big generous way. And I happen to be lucky enough to be emceeing that event. Um, so that's how we met. Yeah, Autumn is very open like that. Very honest. She and told sweet. her incredible like life story the on the stage in front of, you know, a room of almost a thousand women, mostly Jewish women in this, um, at this fundraiser. So it was crazy. I can't tell you how often people have mentioned that event to me. And, you know, usually when an event goes well as a performer, like as an MC, I get a lot of credit, you know, people are like, oh, that's such an amazing event. But very quickly when they talk to me, they move very quickly on to how powerful they thought the event was, which I think really speaks to just like what Autumn did in that room. Yeah, yeah, you know, I just did not to make it about me, but I always do this. By My all listeners, means, please. Know this. I mean, look, this is your podcast. I know, but some people get annoyed. <laughs> they know who they are. Um, I did a speaking event recently. I was terrified to do it for a feminist organization. It's called the Women's Fund, and in the greater Milwaukee area. And I had to be. I had to not just do my act. I had to actually be very open, vulnerable. That stuff is very difficult to do. And if you can leave that impression after you've left, it's an amazing thing. I have to be honest, after doing that, I'm a little, I'm not, I'm not as into my standup. Really? Yeah. I, I found that having um, a moment where you can take time to really talk between the jokes is more meaningful to me right That's now. so interesting. It like gave you another layer. Yes. Now, how long have you been doing stand-up? I see you have a Netflix special. Um, yeah, it's a short, it's a short special as part of like a series. Um, there was six of us uh, on the show. I've been doing stand-up. That's a special. That's a Netflix special. Don't you diminish that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't have that. Well, you're a pro. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I, uh, I started not actually that long ago, about, I think it was 20... 2015, where are we? 2015, 2015 is when I started. But um, I kind of have a longer history with stand-up because I was a writer for stand-up before then and TV TV writer for comedy. So yeah, I've been doing that really, been joke writing since I left high school, I guess. Yeah. But stand-up, stand-up, I'd say seven years. Now, did you start in Joburg, Cape Town? Started in Joburg, Um yeah, and then just kept going and going and going and going wherever they would have me until, yeah, recently I've gone very far. I've gone, like, I mean, literally far, not metaphorically, just all over the world. And um, yeah, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. 
Now, amazing to me in Joe Berg, as I was telling you before, when I did David Cowell's show, which um, he's supposed to join us, our listeners, he maybe will be on. We'll see. It's it's difficult because of the, is it the power grid? How do I call it? I'm always very, how do I say, un-American in the way that I do care about the differences of what <laughs> you are, goes you're on very in other places. You are more considerate try, of South Africa than best. we are. <laughs> we are quite intolerant, actually. So what is going on with the power grid in oh, South Africa? Can you explain that to me? How much time do you have, Marina? <laughs> Two seconds? Okay, I'll tell you, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, the money was stolen, we don't have power. <laughs> wow. So like Wi-Fi is not, it, it's like... Um, it's controlled by the government? Well, no. So, so right now the problem is uh, we have something called load shedding. Load shedding is power cuts in a scheduled way, right? So like they'll do these set, these slots of like two, depending on how bad it is, it's either two hours or three hours or four hours a day where a certain area won't have power. So they take different areas and then it's like, oh, in Johannesburg, in this particular suburbs, you won't have power from 12 to 2 and from 8 till 10. And you don't have control over the schedule, but at least you kind of know what the schedule is. So many people now have something, either a, a generator that's a full, you know, power backup, or they have something called an inverter, which is a smaller power backup, which you'll use to sort of power essential things like your fridge and your Wi-Fi, and, you know, and like maybe some lights. And it's a little bit cheaper than having a full generator. So I think that's what David has. But we... It should power your Wi-Fi. It depends. You can choose what to power with it, basically. But why? Because um, <laughs> our government <laughs> is corrupt, and uh, um, the 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 public the the South Africa's power utility is a government-owned uh, entity, and um, instead of maintaining and building the power grid over the last couple of decades, it's been basically uh, pillaged by so much corruption that it is now like on the brink of destruction and and no new government or no new leadership. And the leadership keeps changing and the board keeps changing. And But in the meantime, there's just been a lot of um, degradation in the system of how the power is managed. And it can't, it can't, it's not it's not maintain, maintained well enough and it can't supply enough power to this growing grid that is South Africa. Jeez. Amazing. Yeah. I, I can't imagine coming, you know, trying like all of us were on Zoom during the pandemic, doing comedy shows online during the pandemic, trying to get David on the show just now was kind of difficult, you know. Yeah. So I can't imagine like were you able to were you doing Zoom shows? Yeah, I think um, I didn't personally do Zoom shows, but well, I did. I did. I did one or two. I did one or two, um, and you know, we we did okay. I think during the pandemic, they managed to maintain the power, and it's very hard to tell for us as citizens because sometimes they have power. Like suddenly, when there's elections, we have power. <laughs> So I think like at some point during the pandemic, everyone was at home and they realized like they can't, they can't keep 
people in the dark, basically. And then and then later, when the pandemic eased up a bit, they brought back the load shedding schedule. So I personally, I stopped doing the Zoom shows because I felt like I just didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I just thought if this is stand up, then I'm, then I guess I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> I like the money though. Yeah. I got paid, um, no lie. I, I guess I can divulge this on there here. Like two grand for just like maybe an hour sitting, like, like I'm sitting right here talking to you. You see, that's and worthwhile. didn't do my, didn't do my act. Oh. They just, they just interviewed me. <laughs> what, what magic is this? I'm afraid to let go of doing online activity because of what you just said about the power grid. And also I'm looking at what TB is saying here. TB, who's watching us, is saying all the infrastructures around the world are aging and not being fixed the way it's supposed to be, even here in the U.S. So I guess that doesn't really support my argument. But I will say it's always good to like... I will say like before the pandemic, I was doing podcasts and I was doing online stuff. So I was kind of ahead the game, right, ahead of ready. the game. So when it happened, yeah, when I happened, everybody was trying to catch up. Mm. Right? Do you remember that moment where everyone was like, what's Scrambling, Zoom? scrambling. Yeah. And I knew what a Zoom was. Mm -hmm. And it was the first wow. time I actually felt like I was kind of ahead of the game on a lot of ways. So I was getting a lot of guests, a lot of actors on my show, a lot of comedians. Great that don't do podcasts because they needed some form of communication, some form. And I felt like, oh my God, look at this. I'm like, I'm set up for this. Yes. So I'm afraid to like let it go. But you know what? The thing is, I'm a person who believes like um, about following the form of a thing, right? So so for me, it was like, uh, the, I was part of the show where they they also, they paid us, good money to come into a studio and do our stand-up, you know, like five, it was like a sponsored thing, five minutes of stand-up. And I just thought, we're not doing the right thing for the medium, right? If you've got a budget and you've got funny people and you've got a studio, why are we doing stand-up? Let's do something else. Let's do a sketch or let's do um, a conversation or let's do something that suits the medium, you know what I mean? Let's, for me, it was like, let's not try and squash what we do that has a very specific, uh, uh, that has some specific criteria in order to really work. Um, and let's rather do something that suits the medium, you know? Right, like an interview. Like an interview. Right? Like an interview. But I also found like, I tend to talk in story anyway. So mm. I could sit and t I could talk forever. So I, <laughs> that's one thing I know. I, yeah, I could just me talk. Too. Me too. And, I, and, mm. and TV was saying he missed the um, hearing the laughter. So a lot of times I would be on the Zoom shows and I would say, turn on your yeah. audio so I can hear a laugh. Even if, like, I noticed those controlled Zoom uh, corporate gigs or whatever they were. Yes. They would have the sound off and I would make fun of that. And I would say, turn it on. I, what is, come on, what are we doing here? It just made it more real. Yeah. And then they would turn it on and you, you, you could see the employees go, are you sure? And I'm like, yes. What are you going to heckle me? You paid for this. Come <laughs> on, turn it on. I, yeah, I did two <laughs> corporates. I did two corporates. One and it's, isn't it so strange how even if the sound is off, you can tell if you're doing a good job or not. I couldn't believe 
what I'm like, how can I tell that this is going really badly or really well? And in the two, the two ones that I remember, one went really well. And I think part of it was I couldn't hear them, but I could see them. And they were writing comments. So I could see all their comments. And so I could tell that they were enjoying it. They were repeating the lines. They were doing all kinds of stuff like that to me. Um, and the other one was like this. I was do, I did this corporate for this like some IT company or something in Germany. And they were just like staring at me. And I could <laughs> just tell in my bones that it was just, it was a bomb. I could tell I was bombing, even though there was no real way to tell. But they, aren't they like that? As they an audience, are kind of like that. Life. I have performed to, to the Germans a lot and they are kind of like that. So it's kind of hard to tell, yes. you know. But I, I had not, a feeling. I, yeah, I performed not that Amsterdam and Germany, two different things, right? Mm. However, the Dutch, the first time I performed in Amps, Rotterdam, it was the funniest. I just, I couldn't read, I couldn't read an expression. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they're having a good time. I, it's the funniest thing because it's just the way they are. They just, yes. you know. Yes. <laughs> I remember seeing a jazz show. We were I was with my friend Brad Trackman and it was a jazz and we were really enjoying it. We looked around. We, were, we had a pop brownie and <laughs> we just start, because, <laughs> you know, we're in amps, but we just started laughing because we're looking at how they showed enjoyment and it just, you can't, you can't no. tell. La- last night, even Cape Tonians, who I- I'm in Cape Town now and I did my show last night and uh, there was a woman in the front row who I was talking to a bit in the show and she was smiling, but she wasn't like, she didn't look like she was having the time of her life, you know? But she was smiling at me the whole show. And then today she posts a thing on Instagram that says, um, it's like a story. And it says, go watch Gilly's show. It's incredible. I was in hysterics from beginning to end. I was like, but I saw you. You weren't, I, was, I saw you with my own eyeballs, lady. But, <laughs> but I guess she had a good time. You know what I mean? I guess that's what matters. In whatever way she had a good time, she had a good time. <laughs> Yeah, some people enjoy things differently. I remember a woman sitting in the front row one time, and I said, "Are you ha- are you sure you're having a good?" <laughs> you know, sometimes I forget. You never know what's going on with people. You exactly. never know what's happened in their life. Exactly. Culturally, too, the way people enjoy things is very different. Totally. I mean, the Dutch. I I, I look. I I love performing in Holland, but I just never know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just never it's, know. It's not, nothing against them. And I know there's a lot of Dutch in Joburg and in Cape Town. Uh, you know, it's funny. As an American, not as a comedian, when you start to travel, you're like, oh, that's right. Yes, that yes. Sense. Yes, yes. I mean, I will say that. That's right. If you look at history, you go, that's right. Joburg yes, is that a, makes sense. No, but a I, Dutch but I, name, right? Um, yeah, it, that whole history is a whole other kettle of fish. It's not, they're not really Dutch anymore yeah well, they're not no like the, the heritage is dutch you know i see okay. but they're not like dutch people today you know it's 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 a heritage thing but one thing you reminded me of now is that the thing that i discovered for myself with the zoom thing and it was a good thing to learn because I, I kept trying to figure out, like, why isn't this working for me? Is it because I am not in a room with them? Is it because we're separate? Is it, you know, because all the different configurations weren't working for me. The 
the seeing like one thing, seeing it spotlighted, then seeing different individuals. I couldn't figure out what it was. And the thing that I discovered was that the reason it doesn't work is not because we are not with them. It's because they're not with each other. And, and when, mm. when you are talking to an audience, that audience, as you'll well know, every single audience becomes one, one, almost like one identity. They become one person to us as performers. And, you know, as, as years go by, we learn how to better assess who that individual is that they become because they kind of become a person. And then, you know, as much as you can solidify them and understand who that particular person is that you're talking to that night, then you can sort of learn how to talk to that person per se. And in the Zoom thing, they didn't get to be with each other and feel each other. And I think that was for me, and, and it was so good to learn that because that now when I'm in front of an audience, I know what that is for them. They don't know that, you know. Like when we blame an audience for being a bad audience, it's not in their control. It's just the person they became. They just became a shitty person that night. You know what I mean? <laughs> they had, like they had no control it's, over it's it. It's hilarious. It's, it is crazy how you're like, how does one audience like a joke and another audience decides no? It's and just one time mad. I was, uh, this, it is, this weekend I was performing at the cellar and this, audience at the left was having so much fun like I'm used to seeing at certain clubs. No, right. not to say the cellar. The, the audience is somewhat different at the cellar. There's somewhat, um, I would call them like elite comedy fans. Right, right. Um, they're not loose with it. They're not wild with their laughs. They are really kind of um, listening for the jokes. They're mm. a little bit, they're a little stobby with mm. it, okay? So like you go to other clubs where it's like they're, they're, they don't, they're not being um, maintained by managers. They're wild. They know they can get away with a lot of shit. The seller is very like seriously it's strict, policing yeah. the room, which we need. Yeah. However, in other rooms, because it can be sort of unpoliced, which can be also dangerous, but the laughs can be a little looser and wilder. And this table was acting like that at the cellar. It was very fascinating because I'm like, yeah, this is kind of like, and they were like hooping and hollering. And I was like, I watched the rest of the audience terrified. <laughs> That's so funny. They were like, what are you doing? We this don't is not how we watch way. comedy. Yeah. <laughs> it was almost like a judge. They were, ju I said, don't, ju this is, this is how you supposed yeah, to do Yeah, they're doing it. it right. They're doing it right. They're enjoying themselves. And why aren't you, the way you look, you looking at them, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Laughter is contagious. Yeah. So let it spread throughout the room. But it's sad to say, after a while during my set, I saw them start to become a part ah, of the audience right, right, that right. had a tamer laugh. Right. The, that seller audience's life feels like it's, it expects to be um, almost, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when you interrogate something? Ju judging the set almost, you know, it's like an intellectual exercise of some kind. It's not, you know. It's definitely like worth <laughs> studying what happens to an audience. I don't know if you do this now that you're back. I don't go up as much as I used to. And I used to mm. go up every single night. I used to go up Monday through Saturday. Right. And by Sunday I would take off because I couldn't take anymore. But, and that's in my older age now. Like when I was a younger comic... I wouldn't take off at all. Right. Perform, right. I, and I felt guilty if I didn't perform like yes. one night. How often do you go up? Well, you know, in South Africa, when I started, and even now, 
you can't go up every night. There isn't any way for you to go up every night. So I, when I, when I started, there was just enough to go up maybe a couple of times a week. And of course I wasn't any good, so I couldn't get up a couple of times a week. Um, as I started to get better, um, I would go up as often as possible. And I mean, like, I, we only had two clubs in Johannesburg and I would go to the club on Thursday, Friday and Saturday, whether or not they said I could have a spot, whether they said yes or no, I would go. And I would wait and hope that somebody like didn't make it or didn't show up or just by virtue, I knew that just by virtue of the fact that I was there, they would have a harder time saying no to me to get up. And, you know, so that's kind of how I managed to sort of claw my way, um, it, you know, because you need you. the time, right? You need the time. And that's right. Um, and now in the last year, I have been touring really aggressively. Like since March, I... After the Netflix thing came out, my goal was how do I get, I, I need to get out of South Africa simply because I can't do my job here, you know, on a consistent basis. I can't do it enough and I can't earn to sustain myself. So my plan was like, let me try and use, like leverage this Netflix thing and see if it can open a few doors in other scenes for me to have access to, you know, just so I can perform. And so I had a tour, I tour with a, with a show called Story Party um, that I was, I was lucky enough to meet a guy called um, Rackman Blake who started this show. And I was always a guest on his show. He toured the world with his show and I was a, a guest and he would take me on tour with him. And in the last year, he hasn't wanted to tour at all. So he asked me if I would host the tour. And so... That's what I've been doing. And I've been using those short tours that are like a week here, a week there, and piggyback off that to try different scenes, basically since March. So I've been I've been on the road very aggressively since like for most of this year. I was in London, then I was in New York, then I was I was in LA, then I was in New York, then I was in Canada, then I came home, then I was in Australia, then I came home, then I was back in London. And you know, in, in London, I was in Amsterdam and all of the Netherlands twice, and I went to Norway. So like I've been basically using those tours to try and, you know, find a place to do what I'm doing. And now that I'm back in South Africa, I'm, I'm here for two months. Um, I'm going back to London at the end of February to do shows. And so, I, you know, my thing now is like, honestly, I've had a year of, of performing a lot. I've gotten to be on stage a lot. And for much longer periods of time, I've gotten to be on stage for 45 minutes at a time, you know, and hosting the show. I'm on stage for two halves of the show because I do basically almost my hour in that first hour. And then the rest is a lot of audience interaction. But I've basically learned a lot. But what I didn't get to do is I found that I did not have like a new creative thought or idea in my brain the entire time I was away. And it's because I was just surviving every day. Um, yes. And so... And so now my thing is I set up these shows. I did this thing to myself, which is insane, which is instead of having a break, I decided that I am going to do a show in Cape Town every Sunday night, which is not where I live. I live in Johannesburg typically, but I'm going to do a show every Sunday night in Cape Town from the beginning of December until the end of January. So for nine weeks, I'm going to do a show to a small audience. It's 50 people. And, um, just have a good time. Just have a good time and do it in my, on my own terms. I'm not, I'm not really trying to do other gigs. Uh, I'm not, I'm just trying to live and enjoy my friends. I was so lonely on the road for so long. I was just lonely all the time. Like I remember being in a, 
I was, I was in a green room at a show in Oslo. And I just thought like in the break, I went back to the green room and I was by myself and I was like, how come those people are all outside with their friends and I'm in here alone? <laughs> Don't want you go out there. I did eventually. And meet somebody. At some of, so at some of the shows, after the shows, okay. I ended up going out with yeah. people and it was fun, but it's still, it's not the same, you know, as a comic, the yes. company you want after a show is a company, is company that's going to indulge you and reminisce about the show, you know? That's right. So I, what right. I'm enjoying doing is like doing these shows. I have um, like friends of mine, comedian friends who are guests on the show every week. And I get to do almost, you know, my hour basically at the end of the show. But I get to have another act on. We get to chop it up after the show about what what, what happened. And that's that's to answer your question in a very long way. I'm, I'm performing once a week at my show for these nine weeks. Good. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And the fact that you're having a, that making sure you have a good time. I was telling someone that recently that in this time that we're in and that we're coming out of a pandemic and a lot of people are suffering through depression that you have to really work hard to be happy. Happiness does not come easy and, you know, happiness is relative, but you do have to work hard for happiness. It's, it's just... What you have to, you have to create spaces for yourself. That's yeah. great that you do that. I was going to ask you what it's like as a woman. I know that's a horrible question, but as I did that feminist presentation and I said that, I said, this is a question I always get. What is it like being a female comedian? Yes. I said, I don't think men get that question, but it is an important one to answer because there is a difference. Yes. I think it's gotten better, but do you feel like you've had in South Africa, has it been difficult as a female comedian? You know what? It's been, um, there's pros and cons to it, I found, over the long run. Um, initially, I didn't think it was, I, I felt like I was really embraced initially. Um, but I've had waves, you know, I've, I felt differently about it over time, you know, and it certainly has not been easy. I mean, I think I started stand-up really like as an, as a real adult, you know what I mean? I was 33. And so I'd had a career in film and I was, I, it, you know, I didn't depend on stand up at that time. Um, and I just think like, sure, it was really intimidating. And I'm a person who's like, I'm fairly confident. I know my city very well. There's very few spaces that I don't just walk into. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not like, um, and, and in Johannesburg, that is a thing. You have to, you have to kind of be brave anyway in Johannesburg. It's a scary city. It's a violent city. And you have to, for stand up specifically, you'll know, you have to go into spaces that are uncomfortable. And I always remember thinking my first couple of times walking into the clubs and, you know, even the, our clubs and our open mic nights are kind of interchangeable. It's not like in New York where like a mic is typically of a lower quality than a club. Uh, you know, we don't have that many shows. So whether we are in the club, you know, or in the bar, it's really, you know, it's just, it was just as important, especially when, you know, I was starting. And I remember being so intimidated to walk. I had to like just suck it up, you know, and like fake it and like walk up to the group of guys and be like, I'm here, you know, and try not to yeah. not to crumble just from the sheer intimidation of being a woman and an outsider as a woman, you know, in that space. And I always remember thinking like, I'm a person with a certain amount of experience and confidence. And I can't imagine what it's like for somebody with even a tiny bit less confidence. 
you know, tiny, just this much less confidence. How would they manage this situation? And so it's no, it's never been a surprise to me why there aren't more women on the scene. It's, 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 it's very obvious. If I think about all of the growth and the confidence and the self-esteem I have, and I'm still intimidated in that environment, I can't imagine what it's like for like a 19-year-old woman who might not have that confidence, you know, who can't, who doesn't have the life experience to be like, oh, this is just a game and you have to just play the game, you know. That's right. Yeah. I, that's one of the things I I said on stage that, you know, your upbringing or how you're brought up gives you sort of the privilege to walk in those spaces. A lot of times I would be the only woman or the only black female mm. in these spaces. And it wasn't until later that I realized how unfair it was for other women of color in these spaces or other women in these spaces who didn't have the ability to be in those spaces because they just didn't have whatever I had. And that doesn't yes, mean that right, right. I'm better. Right. It just means that it's unfair. So like I get along with guys. So I was able to yeah. swim in these spaces of men. And that's nothing to um, celebrate, right? Like, you know, sometimes I felt like, I remember when I was younger, I'd be like, look at how I'm managing this. This is great. I'm yeah. going to survive. But it's not, it's not actually not something to celebrate. It's something to go, why is it this way? Why do I have to be I, all of this in order to survive here? Which creates the queen bee syndrome of the woman who only wants to be the only one. Yes. And it, it's interesting now that I'm older, that I'm looking back and I'm seeing all of it for what it is. Right. I even see like black comedians who would come into the space who didn't have the ability to talk maybe to the owner the way that I did. They didn't, right. they weren't used to white people. Right. In these spaces, it was terrifying for them and they yes. would say the wrong things. Yes. Yeah, I often think about, I would also think about how in South Africa, you know, we've got such complex politics around race. I mean, not just in South Africa. We just have a, you know, it's whatever. It's South Africa's specific history with race. And... Yes. And I used to think like as a white South African, I walk into a space and that gives me a certain amount of privilege and, and confidence, even though the irony is that I'm a minority racially and from a gender perspective in every comedy space. And it's a, it's a weird thing. It's like, I'm, I'm a, I'm Jewish, you know, as a South African Jew, you're a white person. And actually my, my parents are Israeli and they are, you know, they came to South Africa before I was born. So I'm the first person in my family who's actually South African. Like I'm a first generation South African. And I used to go on stage often and talk about how I'm Jewish. And you know, it's funny. It's like, it's a, it's, a, it's an instinct in the beginning of comedy to identify yourself. But, but I was told by my peers, it was, a, and it was a good lesson to learn. They were like, Gilly, you know, we don't register you as this Jewish thing. When you walk on stage, we see a white woman. Like that's what we see. And if you want to unpack that on stage, that's fine. But you should know that that is what we see. We don't differentiate between the fact that you are Jewish or white or whatever it is, right? So that was one thing. And and then I understood what that meant for me with my peers, you know? And it meant that, oh, I'm coming into the situation where it's majority black men or men of color, and I come in as a white woman. And that actually allows me some kind of access that maybe black women don't have in those spaces. And then it doesn't surprise me right. that I don't see the black women around me. I see, you know, we've got very successful black women comedians in South Africa, but they are very successful. They're like at the top. And then underneath right. that, there are very, very few black women comics. 
So it's like, wow. what, what can you use? Like what, what helps you get in? Do you know what I mean? And it's such yes. an interesting thing because South Africa's like power shift went in our scene from, um, white male comics who ruled the scene. And now really they, there are still those white male comics, but they have, they, are, they, they sort of have grown away from a scene and they have their own, own audiences and they do their own show. They don't really necessarily mix with, you know, the younger crowd and neither do the older um, black comedians and, and, you know, Indian comedians or uh, comedians of color, let me say, once they're very successful, they don't really have to come and do the clubs and stuff like that because they have their own audience. They can get people to come to their shows. But, but there are very, very few white people in comedy in South Africa. And the scene, most of the shows are run and produced by, by men of color. Very fascinating. Cause yeah. it's, it's, I wonder, like, because we were talking about that in email, like comparing it to America, like white male comedians in America are feeling as if they're not necessary anymore or they don't have the white man. Yes. So, it, but, and then in South Africa, it's it's a bit different because, yes, because of apartheid. Yes. But also as a white person, you are a minority, you know? Yes. Yeah. But in South Africa, that was in charge for a very long yeah. time. Was it like 23 years ago? Well, you know, it still feels like, you know, it's, you know, it's this thing that's like, it's a white minority behaving like a majority, you know, because historically white yes. people obviously were in power. And it's, you know, those structures don't just go away. And I've often, what I found is that like I said, I think like the white men in comedy either felt like they were irrelevant and have drifted away or they've, there's almost like there's some white comics I find, especially, well, specifically the male comics, because you don't see older white female comics. They don't exist. It was only the white male comics um, who, like I said, have their own audiences. And I, I don't see them specifically, I guess you get certain types, but the ones that are doing well are the ones who are not better, you know, give other comics opportunities on their shows. Um, they, you know, welcome younger comics into their worlds. Um, and what's interesting is as a white South African, you, especially in the arts, you, you, I, I will say this, like as a woman going into the scene, if I'm being, if I'm not being treated well by the men, I've always thought to myself like, oh, it's because I'm white and that's par for the course, right? So I have to just eat it. And I feel like that's fair in a way, you know? It's just fair the way that the power dynamics have shifted. Um, but then it gets very hard for me to tell if it's misogyny or not. Oh, that's, a, yeah, that's interesting. That's fair. So that's always- Because yeah, it probably a, is. It, it can't be, those things can't be separated. It's not so easy to separate them. You know, so when you ask me, is it hard? Sure it is, but it's, it's tricky for me to understand sometimes what part of it is this or that, you know, it's a, I have to navigate that thing right. and try to understand it. And at the end of the day, I come down to misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Feminism in South Africa must be a very interesting thing. And, you know, had I, there was a young uh, there is a comedian that I was trying to get on this episode with you, but she has not. I'm not going to have her on eventually. I'm going to try to find her name. She's she was in 
in New York recently. Celeste. And I was like, I, uh, oh, there's just one. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, what's, oh, Tumi. Oh, Tumi Morake. Tumi Marake, yes. Yes, yes. I was going to yes. have Tumi on. I am, am going to have her on soon. She was in New York. Whenever I meet comedians from South Africa, I'm always excited because I know how hard and difficult it is to get stage time. And yeah. how, like you were saying, how rare to get up it is. And also, like you were talking about, the danger of Joburg. Like, yes. I didn't even understand that when I was traveling there. Like I said, as a young comic, I, all of a sudden you do feel American when you go... As a black American, you you never feel like American. Then you go overseas and you're like, oh, right, I am. Don't know anything. <laughs> and then I... I <laughs> but then I go there. I remember um, David telling me to just stay in the hotel. And I, and I remember uh, comedian Colin Quinn telling me it's very dangerous. And I was like, what are you talking about? Then David was like, yes, it is. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, now right. I'm listening to David. Because I'm not going to listen to the white man tell me it's dangerous. Right, well, right, I listen to the black right. man tell me it's dangerous. Who's in South Africa, if he's telling me it's dangerous, then it's dangerous. Yeah. And he was like, yes, you you cannot just go anywhere here. I have to be with you. And I'll never forget who's editing a video. And a young lady was helping him, like an intern. And she needed a look <laughs> Speaking of the devil. Thank you. And now we have David Cow, who we were trying to get on earlier. Thank you so much for joining us. We were just in the middle of talking about how Joburg is dangerous. <laughs> it sounds so awful. Uh, it's not dangerous overall, but I do remember that time when I came to visit you and I did your show, Blacks Only. I haven't been back. Did I not do good or something? What the fuck? <laughs> David Cow is a huge the rent, star the rent, the rent in South it's Africa. Because you're a woman, the rent, Rina, we were just talking about misogyny before you showed up, David. How you doing, David? It's the rent against the dollar. <laughs> it's not me, and it's worse. It's worse, it's worse. In the past three, four days because because of the president who sort of could have, might have resigned, but didn't, won't, has gone to court. And because he's had hit his money on the couch. Can we? <sighs> that's more, to me, that's more dangerous, actually, than crime. Than, cause crime, you have a choice to not go to certain places or maybe have security if you go somewhere. Um, not drive at night, not drive mm. alone, don't take an Uber, ask someone right. to pick you up. With this other nonsense, we're stuck with these people. <laughs> that we chose and we gave power to. And, um, you know, waiting for the next election is too costly. It's been a long four or five years of, you know, every day it's like something new. And um, every day I sit and think nothing worse can happen. <laughs> so whether it's crime, price of petrol, corruption, Every single day, most South Africans, we think we've seen it all until we wake up. And then, I mean, money under a couch, in a couch, in a mattress. Let's just create some context. Let's, let's create some context, Dave. For a second, because uh, a lot of people listening don't really know what happened. Now, I know we have here this, that um, his name is Cyril Ramaphosa. 
Did I butcher that well, name? Prince Charles called him Rama. Rama Fosa. So I think you can call him Rama Fosa. You know, the only thing that makes a white person, a white South African, feel better is when a, like a black American mispronounces black South African names. It just makes us feel so good because then we don't feel so inept. I, prom- I yeah. mispronounce everybody's name. <laughs> But but you 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 pronounced it the exact same way as as is it King Charles? Well, now? how do you say it? Is it, it King, is King Charles? Charles? It's no longer yes. Prince Charles, right? Yeah, so he called him Ramaphosa. How do you so say you're, it? You're in the same boat, same WhatsApp, same WhatsApp group. It's like King a P, Charles. not a PH. You don't say the H, so think about it like Ramaphosa. It's a PH. Ramaphosa. Okay, so yeah. Ramaphosa. Yeah. Like pause, a like pause with an A, like P A. U-S-E, and then an A. That's how you pronounce ah, it. Ramaphosa. But it's spelled... So that dude. Yeah, <laughs> but it's pronounced... Yeah, but it's, So his surname is spelled P-H-O-S-A. Ramaphosa. Oh, R-A-M-A-P-H-O-S-A. There you go. Yes. yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm sorry, David. I love listening to you talk. (laughs) You know what I've always known? I've known David for years. What I love about David, he has such a gentle quality about himself, but he's so smart and so funny and just just a great person overall. But like you're you're like you take your time. There's a a number of comedians, male comedians that I appreciate that with because some men, when they get on stage, they have this like over overly loud so fast they have to have this energy that i don't really doesn't really appeal to me there's certain comedi- male comedians that have this dismay you have it owen smith has it tony woods has that quality that in front of an audience demands respect anyway that's my compliment so so let me let me try and summarize it right so so our president uh, i'll take a few minutes i won't i won't be too long so our current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, when Nelson Mandela was the president in 1994 to 1999, ideally Cyril would have succeeded him in 1999. But Tabo was much more clever and maneuvered and eventually Mandela made Tabo the vice president or the deputy president and F.W.D. Clark at the time, who was the last apartheid president, if you want to call it that, was a whole coalition unity thing. But most people would say Nelson Mandela would have preferred Cyril Ramaphosa then to be his deputy. But Thabo was much more clever. He ended up becoming the deputy and he was pretty much running the country because Mandela was very ceremonial and, you know, just trying to get people to be together, reunite. He's just like, he, he's always like with like celebrities. He was like the, almost like our, our, our celebrity, our celebrity president, you know, ah, gotcha. at that stage, I think, you know. No, but very close. Naomi Campbell is very, very close to the Nelson Mandela family. We were at the Mandela house in uh, 2018 after a Global Citizen concert and then Dave Chappelle. Um, but anyway, so then Cyril Ramaphosa pulled out of politics in a way and became a businessman and eventually was a billionaire and then in 2012 Khalima Mutlante was the deputy president to Jacob Zuma and after five years 
he decided to run against Jacob Zuma, right? Instead of allowing Jacob Zuma to have his two terms, and then he would also become the president for his two terms, he went and competed against Jacob Zuma. So what the Zuma camp did, they pulled back Sir Ramaphosa from wherever he was, being a farmer and selling like cows for like two, three million dollars, or bulls, if you want to call them that. Apparently the sperm is like $70,000 from these things, you know. So he was into game and lots of businesses, was billionaire. And then the Zuma guys called him and made him run against Khalema Mutante. So then Cyril became the deputy president of the ANC, which almost kind of makes you the deputy president of the country like a year or two after the, the ANC elections, right? Which are happening this December, the next kind of every five years, whatever. So Cyril came, became the deputy president for almost nine years that Jacob Zuma was the president. Where everyone said Jacob Zuma was messing up, Cyril was the deputy president and he was the deputy president in charge of business in South Africa. So all the boards, appointments and all the state-owned companies, so from the rail company to the electricity company, post office, blah, 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 blah. He was kind of dealing every day with the business of the country. In the past, whatever, nine years when Jacob Zuma was the president. Then when Jacob Zuma was ousted at the ANC conference in 2017, Cyril then became the president of the ANC, which a year or two later, he would become the president of the country. Can I just interject for one second before you finish? Just before you finish, it's important to know that in South Africa, we don't vote for a president. We vote for a party. And, and the, party, the party's president becomes the South African president. Carry on, sorry. So if the ANC made really their president during their December conference, pretty much the majority of the country, if they still vote ANC, Gailey would become the president of the country. Doesn't matter her background or how, what she's qualified for, or her background. Not, I refuse, just for so, the record. <laughs> <laughs> it's that bad. It's that bad. So now, the way things have happened, Nelson Mandela is the only president so far who finished his term. Although he only did one term, he finished his term, right? Tabon Beki in his second term, instead of his full 10 years, when Jacob Zuma became the president, which is then a year before the national country elections, they decided to get rid of him. Then there's like an interim president, Khalama Mutlanto was the acting president. And then elections, maybe 18 months later, then Jacob Zuma becomes the president. When Cyril became the president, now Jacob Zuma was fired before he finished his second term. So he didn't finish his full two terms. So, so far, historically, Nelson Mandela is the only ANC president that's ever finished the term in office. Because the ANC elections happens 18 months to two years before the country general election. So because of their nonsense and not having enough patience to wait and, and loot or whatever it is that they want to do, they always get rid of each other. 
So currently this December, Cyril has had one term as the country president. He has to win the ANC presidency in December, and then he will become the candidate for the presidency in a year or two when we vote national elections. If he stays the president, if they don't vote him out. But the ANC presidency controls the whoever they put as the president of the country. It's called two centers of power. So whoever is the president of the ANC kind of has to become the president. Otherwise, he will just become a lame duck to the president of the ANC. That's why then they fire and recall and tell you you're no longer the president because now I'm the new president of the ANC. I can call you back as the president of the country. We, the party can call you back and tell you we're deploying someone else. So we no longer want you as the So president. where are they? Because it looks like from American news that it's divided up it, within... No, it gets divided every every five years, every election, because they all start forming factions instead of having a succession plan, basically. They start breaking up and breaking away. Eventually now, two other political parties have formed again from the ANC and they are breaking up every four or five years, every election. So there's a guy called Arthur Fraser who used to be a spy, like a proper last number spy, official position also in government, in the defense and in the intelligence space. So a few months ago, about six months ago, he came out with this evidence that in 2020, in February, there was a break-in at the current president, Sir Ramaphosa's private game lodge, right, where he has his game auctions and they sell bulls to each other and his, his mates, uh, not of this color, uh, for like two, three million dollars. No, black people can't afford that one. Can't, they can't or they... But it's like a thing, you know. You, you, you want to buy a cow for like 50 million rands, then a 9 million rands, 7 million rands. So there's there's a game auction that he has and he's passionate as a farmer. And he, he was supposed to put all this in a blind trust where all his businesses now, where he's a billionaire, someone else is running those businesses. He's no longer involved because he's the president of the country. So now this master spy... Arthur Fraser comes out with all this evidence, pictures, video of the theft and the really? breaking. Really? I didn't know that. At the president's private. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a video and everything. And he goes to the police station and opens a case and says the president has not recorded that he had so much money, so many millions of dollars. The number varies from four to eight million dollars from the guy. The president at first said it's far less. I'm sure you can find a clip of him saying it's far less. <laughs> and then the number keeps ranging from two, three hundred thousand to five hundred eighty thousand, depending on which media is writing the story or who's saying it, right? But what remains is there was cash, US dollars, not in a safe whether it was in a mattress or under the mattress or... No, they're saying, just, just tell the couch story. They're saying that there was there was money, he had cash under his couch and the, that couch was, that money, that cash was stolen and he privately went about trying to recover the money, which obviously is... Right, uh, they, I saw They're that. saying obviously that's money that's untaxed because he's hiding the money. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then he asked, like, maybe his head of security yes. or like the, the head of security to go, you know, whatever. Find out. People get asked. Can I do like a private investigation? But it was a government employee in intelligence or security, right? Or part of his security detail. So this guy privately went around, caught the people that supposedly stole the money, who the story is the boyfriend of the domestic worker or the helper, who's Namibian, stole some cash. Got someone to know him out of South Africa. The listeners can't see David. And what he's doing right now is not, he's faux rowing a boat. A, he's actually faux rowing a boat. Not a speedboat, not a yacht, not a helicopter. In like a canoe, like, you know, when students or in American movies, yeah, and there's like a canoe <laughs> competition. So someone who stole all this hundreds of thousands of US dollars, kind of called a friend in Namibia where he comes from. He canoed. He was like, this get a canoe. That's what I was about to cash. Get I'm me like, a canoe. A great movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, get it's, me like, a canoe. it's like, it's like a Mission Impossible thing. And I would like to row it yeah. myself. It's a Mission Impossible thing, but the movie's like four hours because we watch him canoe to Namibia. <laughs> There isn't even water. Where is the water that he canoed? And then they basically... That's hilarious. It's like, well, this movie has to be a little shorter. Okay, so the guy got back to Namibia, the country of his birth, which is a neighboring country in South Africa. And then when he got there spending money, the Namibian authorities were like, hey, wait, come here. Where do you get all this money? We're going to arrest you. You must have stolen the money. And then they called back to South Africa and told the Justice Department, the police... Yeah, hey, we've arrested this guy who think he stole money from South Africa. And the government just went, they did nothing. They didn't arrest the guy. They didn't come over. They didn't say, hand him to us. He has stolen. So it was all kept hush-hush. And now we just found out basically this year, almost two years later. So basically he was trying to put his money somewhere else, right? No. So no. So the, the first problem is, it's in U.S. Right. dollars, number one. So remember when you travel, you can't have more than $10,000 yes. on you That's, without yeah. declaring it. So here we're talking, according to the spy guy, four to $8 million possibly cash. There's another article that says possibly 50 to $140 Jesus. million, dollars, in which the canoe? was meant to be donated. No, 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 that's not what's stolen. Not, no, no, no. No, don't confuse what was stolen with uh, how much money is in right, the mix. Right. So what was stolen could be a couple of hundred thousand US, maybe not more than a million. But nobody, we don't know, right? But what came in, in US dollars, foreign currency, undeclared, not taxed, not reported, way more than 10,000 US dollars to a sitting president, how it came in, what is it for? So when it came out, all he said was, I sell animals. Some of the buyers come in foreign currency. And the money is far less. He never said it's 100,000 US or it's $300,000 or it's $1 million. So in six months, he's never said what was the figure. He's never said what it was for. Then at some point, there was a name of some guy from... I don't know if from Addis Ababa, like a businessman or from Dubai, who then his name started coming up, being the guy who came and bought some 
animals from the prison. This all sounds very corrupt. And and then his uh, staff didn't take the money to the bank or they didn't tell him. So now it's a bit of, uh, it's a lot of smoke, uh, smoke and mirrors on his side after six months. So then where we are now, in Parliament, they started an investigation. It's called a Section 89 or Rule 89 something, something, which has to determine, does the president have a case to answer? And then that report came back and said, yes, there's a few things here that he needs to answer. So he hasn't been charged criminally. He hasn't been fired or he can't be fired based on that. But as exactly what I've told you, you and I, and me and Gilly are sitting here thinking, the president had foreign currency under a couch in his private residency, never reported it stolen. There's sort of few stories about where it came from. And we don't really know much, especially I from see. him. But we know what the spy guy is saying, documents, papers, video, pictures. The guys were caught, they were tortured and paid to not talk. So if you think all I've said wasn't enough, so the guy who was sent to go look for these people found them, then they tortured them, then they paid them to not say anything. <laughs> so they found <laughs> They went and recovered the stolen money and then paid them back to say that this didn't happen. Oh, my God. But obviously those guys, I mean, those were black guys. They obviously bought cars. Some of them bought like... Now, do you, now to bring this four. so that... The audience, I mean, that is an amazing story. That is a movie that I'm sure, I mean, I just saw it's a smile movie. last night, not in comparison, but I will, <laughs> I I want, I do want a movie. It's a, it's a it's, it's, movie. Yes, absolutely. I want to ask, are you both doing this material in your act right now? Are you talking about it? So when it came out, when it came out about six months ago, I mean, I think I had a black song mm -hmm. in May. So, so I might have done, I might have done some stuff. Um, because remember when you, I mean, if you have someone saying they've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in a, in a couch or in a sofa, it has to be quite a big fucking sofa. It's definitely well, that's not a futon. <laughs> that's what I and, was thinking. I was like, you know how, do you know what it's like for Cyril? What, what people don't understand about our president is he's really rich. This is his fun money, okay? Like he is a mining magnet, right? So the, 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 if it's a couple of million US dollars he finds in his couch, that's like you or me finding $10 in our couch. Yes. You know, he can be like, oh, whoops. Yeah. Oh, whoops. And yeah. But that's what I'm saying. So as his hobby and being a farmer, if you go to an auction, they're literally buying... Gilly, what's the best way to describe a bull? Instead of me saying it's a what cow. What do you mean? Like Everyone American knows what a bull is. It's a male, it's a male a bull cow. Is. She knows what a bull is. It's an animal. I got that. Yeah. That's, that's not, but, in, that's not in, special, Zulu, in English. So they're a special breed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there a Zulu word for it? <laughs> I in what is it? <laughs> in, in can you tell? Can you tell our no, listeners, no, no, by the way, how many no. languages actually are in South Africa? Because I remember when I went there, I was confused by the soap opera. Eleven, eleven languages. Eleven. Yeah, yeah. But now these are called Angole cows, so they're a special breed. 
I think they come from Senegal or Uganda. Like they breed. That's breed. That, Are they organic? You have to breed them. <laughs> and then, I don't know. I don't think so. Sorry. I think that was before they they've been there before the the Me Too movement. So I don't think they are organic. Are they happy cows? These are very happy cows. These are, the, these are organic, the fanciest cows in the country. Grass fed. No, these cows are literally like two, three million dollars. Yeah, so yeah, they're, they're definitely grass fed. Like auction. Yeah. And apparently the sperm, like a liter of sperm from these cows could be well, like a million rand. Did you like, just say sperm? 70,000. Yes. But David, this yes, is what that David understands the story. <laughs> yes, that's, why, that's the big deal. So the reason they cost so much is if they are to mate with your dodgy cow from <laughs> Brooklyn, that cow is made, yo. Did you call our cows dodgy? Did I just hear that? Do you know what these cows are like? In David's mind, in David's mind, these bulls are like uh, Eddie Murphy's character in Coming to America. Like that's the cow, that's the bull that he has in his mind. This is so crazy. Do you know I'm vegan? (laughs) That's a lot of cow talk for me. I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah. I I do want to kind of... Move the conversation. This is very, very interesting. I could do like hours and hours and hours on this. Um, but <laughs> I, I do want to move the, right the conversation. The into, yeah, I mean, my God, David, if your internet had worked, we would have could, you know. But um, Can I just say, I've been ignoring South Africa for months. So I only started hearing about the story in the last week. And I've heard more... I know more about the detail of the story from David right now in this sitting than I have read anywhere. Yeah, because the articles in America, I mean, like, I, I would, I, I guess that's my question to you, David. When you saw, did you read those? Art? They seem to water it down a lot. Mm. So, so that's where, where we're sitting now. A lot of the media seem to favor Cyril Ramaphosa, regardless that's of what That's what I'm reading, does. yes. Mm. So basically, so for the next four years, for the past four years, it's been Zuma messed up the country so badly. It's going to take so long to fix it. That's why the electricity is not working. That's why there's so much corruption. There's so many people that we must arrest and investigate. It's taking me time. I will do something about it. I'm fighting corruption. So it doesn't matter if he was to step on a baby. They're going to say the baby was in the way and he was put there by the Zuma people or the Zuma faction. If he bumped into your car, they're going to say it was parked there by the Zuma people so that Cyril can bump into it. That's where we are now. Now, our our viewer who's watching backstage says, I don't believe I've even, TB, says, I don't believe I've even read about this in some of the European news feeds I look at. No, the guy was there with King Charles waving at us in that, what is that carriage that they, the gold they carriage? Gold carriage? Like, <laughs> they still can do that? Oh, yeah. Queen Elizabeth had like some. I mean, there's a lot. Listen, when you've got a lot of gold, you got to figure out cool shit to do with it. You know what I mean? Turn it into a carriage, make a dress, do a tiara. You know, build a house. What are you going to do with all that gold and all the diamonds? You got to, you got to put them somewhere. Like invite people to invite African presidents for yes. dinner and make them like a ring yes. or like a matching, a matching ribbon. I'm Isn't there something. like an egg, like a gold egg that sh- the queen was supposed to give back? Oh, it's the biggest diamond that she has worth like 400. I thought you were going to say, isn't there a gold egg that the queen laid? 
<laughs> Did she give it back? Before she died. No, she won't she give won't. it back. They won't. Not even her ghost no, will give I'm that sure back. I'm sure you can view it. You can go and view it and pay to view it. Oh my god! Don't she get now, buried I with her wanna... jewels, like with her royal jewels? Don't they bury them? Don't they bury her with them? I think there's like one or two things that go down really? with her, mm. or they they get put on the. Because I don't think she gets buried. Buried, buried. Six feet under. I think the thing and a tomb and a whole thing that. So so we at some point we all thought she's gonna resign and he apparently wanted to resign. Then the other people around him start going, Yay! You can leave, buddy. Ooh. I see. Not now. We still got one, two, three, four to do and so now he's gonna fight this so thing. That's why he's fighting it. So then like the end of they're saying that he's gonna resign at the end of this week, but that's not gonna happen. I doubt it. I mean, I heard people confidently saying on the radio that he was going to resign. A, a week ago, they're like, you know, and um, Cyril Ramaphosa, who will resign, probably resign tonight, but he didn't. He wanted to. I mean, they do name the other politicians in the party that didn't want him to. So the other thing now that's messing with everyone, when he's supposed to resign, then they go, but who's going to take your place? So then yes. that becomes, yes, you rape someone, but you can't resign now. What if the, the other guy is worse? Right. That's basically the way chilling. That if he leaves now, who then? Because the ANC has never had a proper succession plan and they all fight against each other. So if I become the mayor, there's gonna, the next guy is going to take me out. I think, I mean, Cyril himself said it. There's about 400 councillors who have been shot and killed, who are members of the ANC. So that would be your sort of mayor, members of the local government. Uh, I don't know what's the structure in the U.S. So you'll have a New York mayor, you'll have a council, <laughs> and and some of the council members could potentially be the mayor or the deputy. And then this one then takes this one out because if this one is not there... I've got to tell you, David, like I started to get into local stuff in my neighborhood because of this bar underneath me that I can't stand. And I started to realize on a very small... This is nowhere near in comparison. But I started to realize on a very small, small level how corrupt corruption starts to yeah. become very... Like on the very small level of just wanting silence... I started to see the rat hole. Like I started to see like, I found out like our lieutenant governor was corrupt through just trying to get a bar to be quiet, right? And yeah. then I started to worry about my safety. Like at first I was joking. I was like, I could get killed trying to get this restaurant out of business. But this is where it starts. This is from a, like a simple thing of just human decency. And then you mm. start to look at all of the the offices in New York City, then you start going to the government. You're like, you're realizing, oh my God, all this shit yeah. is corrupt. So the city council, how the plans mm -hmm. are approved. So, I mean, here we protest that, no, you can't build more units or townhouses or apartments. There's not enough sewage, road, this, that, da, 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 da. Sign whatever petition against, attend whatever meeting. And then one day you wake up with that building. Because money has been exchanged somewhere or was already exchanged. They were just trying to formally let you know that 
we're going to act like we did ask you guys right. in the neighborhood if you want to have a strip club around the corner. But, you know. There's a building here in Cape Town, fancy, fancy building in an area called Mully Point, like a big apartment complex that had been built recently, like in the last couple of years. And then somebody, it was like bought and sold because somebody had the opportunity to buy and sell it for more. And it was demolished and rebuilt just because some guy managed to make a few extra million dollars by doing it. I mean, they were telling me that like there's some apartments that had never been lived in, like toilets that had never been used in this apartment block. Raised to the ground the and rebuilt so somebody could make a few extra bar. Gotta ask this question. How is it, like I have been in so many conversations about Dave Chappelle, about Kanye. Found out I'm 12% Ashkenazi, so I have a little, little bit of... Oh, really? <laughs> People make fun of me because I'm like, you're not, they're like, you're not Jewish. I'm like, I'm 12%. Listen, we don't have numbers. We will accept your 12%. Yeah, we yeah. accept your 12%. You will? Yeah, like a, yeah we need like you. We need you. There are like not enough of us. We need more cider. Jews. You're like a cider. You're 12%. Well, it's like, you know, I do <laughs> have, um, thank you for, well. You're not like a Jewish whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> You are just a cider. You are just a brutal fruit or a savannah. <laughs> what I do, you know, a lot of times I have these conversations. Gilly, I want to ask you how you're feeling right now about anti-Semitism in South Africa. And like, because people don't really, like, people don't really understand when you talk about the Jews owning things or when you say these types of things, right? It is anti-Semitic because it led to the Holocaust. Any type of conversation in that direction led to a lot of people being murdered. So you can't really tiptoe around it in jokes because it this that's how Hitler got started. I mean, he was doing open yeah. mics talking yes, about this absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. So go ahead, Gilly. Well, you know, I have to tell you, doing just to bring comedy into this, I learned from doing comedy all over South Africa how much anti-Semitism there is that I did not know existed. I mean, I had an, like an awakening. And um, I have come to realize that everybody hates Jews a little bit or a lot. <laughs> That's just what I have learned the hard way from like, even if they don't know they hate Jews, they hate Jews. I, I, can, find it, I can find a bit of anti-Semitism in almost so, everyone. That's what I've discovered. So ironically, right, in South Africa, if... If black guys or middle class black people or people that want to be successful, they always compare or model themselves on Jewish people in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people want to have Jewish business partners or they will say, but, you know, Jewish people do this. Muslim people are like, but black people are like fighting each other. They're jealous of each other. They're not working together. So in my experience, that's my experience, right? And obviously then a lot of the businesses are owned and controlled, just like anywhere else. But so for us, it doesn't even go as far as our anger or we are angry because Jewish people own this, that. Remember, we come from apartheid, which is an Afrikaans design thing, which then may have, you know, treated the black people the worst, worse than the Indian people or Jewish people or colored people or, or whatever. So... I don't think, for me personally, I don't think black people, I, I could never even tell the difference between a, 
this is a white person or this is a Jewish person. To me, white people are white people. That's what I was telling Marina earlier. As a Jewish person in South Africa, you are a white person, effectively. But there are Jews that are Ethiopian. There are black-colored Jews. So so can I just say, the thing about South Africa is that, you know, I think we, we because we are so accustomed to the, the conversation in South Africa around race being around black or white, we forget that every South African was forced and is forced as a result years later to be identified as something. And that something is very narrow. You are either black or white or Indian or Asian. Forget Forget any other identity you might have. Yes. And, and so it's like, as a Jewish person, you are a white person. There's no room for, for uh, nuance, you know. So if you're an Ethiopian Jew and you come case, to South Africa, how do you, what do you do? Do you, you just go on black? I would, people have to tell me that they're Jewish for me to start going, yes. oh, okay. Because to me, they were white people. So I would sit in my house. And be like, yeah, white people this, white people that. And then I look, and then my father-in-law, my Greek father-in-law, is sitting there. And I'm like, not you, you're not white. You're well, you Greek. know, it's the funniest thing, Dave. I remember meeting your wife years ago, and she's considered colored, right? When you look uh, at her. She would have been thought of as colored. You would think she's colored. Okay. I think we need to explain colored. Yeah. Colored means. <laughs> but she does. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, colored people come from a colored mom and a colored dad. Her mom is Zulu, her dad is Greek. Some people's dads are Italian, their moms are South African or Black or Zulu or Sutu. So they are not colored, they're mixed. It's not a race, but it's like a thing. So you, there are people who are mixed or considered mixed in South Africa, but they're not colored. They can't speak Africans, they don't come from... Um, Cape Town, like the majority like Trevor. of Trevor. Trevor's a good example of that. Or a colored township. So Trevor yeah. is mixed. Because his father right? is Swedish. He's got right? a white dad. Swiss. Yeah. Or a Swedish dad or whatever. And but in South Africa, on first look, people would think he's colored and he probably speaks Afrikaans, but then he can be speaking Zulu or Kosa. Okay. And not even know Afrikaans. Whoa. It's just, it's a specific culture and with a specific in my heritage. White Okay. Yeah. In my wife's case, because of apartheid in South Africa, the mom and dad couldn't live in South Africa. So they lived in Swaziland because they weren't allowed to be black and white together in South Africa. And then when Mandela was becoming president or coming out, they moved back to South Africa from Swaziland. That's some love. Right. I mean, some people don't stay Where together then and then it's like you're fighting people. also like... <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> how how many marriages last? And then you're like... Funny sometimes enough, having a common enemy a strengthens your relationship. I remember there's this guy that I knew as a Jewish guy who was uh, married to a Jewish woman. Well, they had this relationship, right? And his parents did not want him to marry somebody who wasn't Jewish. And they fought his parents and they fought and they fought and they fought and they fought and they fought. And then they got married and everybody accepted everything. And maybe like a year later, they were divorced. I think they just, there was nothing left to fight. And that was like the purpose of their marriage, you know? Because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have it. So I, I want to yeah. go back to this about Kanye. Like, so Gilly, how mm. do you perceive Kanye? Like, what is that? How does he make you feel? I guess, I, uh, with lack of a better way to put it than a therapist. Yeah. You know what? I think it's crazy. Maybe a, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe five or 10 years ago, I would have been um, 
even more offended than I am now because I, I wouldn't understand that this is a, pro- a person who looks like to me in my lack of experience as a, as a, you know, a psychologist who looks to me like he's having some kind of mental breakdown. And so I'm sensitive to the fact that what's happening now is not, is not, I want to say it's not a rational person who's being an anti, anti-Semite, but the truth is we're constantly giving people outs from racism for, you know, because they're not well. And I don't know that it's very, it's very hard to listen to a man say, I like Hitler and watch all of the stuff play out. And all of, you know, I've, I've watched all of those clips of him talking to Alex Jones and all that stuff. That is, you know, blatant, radical anti-Semitism. There's no other way to look at it. There just isn't, there just isn't another way to look at it. And I think maybe it's that coupled with whatever he's going through mentally. And we, it's very hard for us to tease out the different things, you know. And I can tell you, like, recently, recently, just from a personal perspective, I'm having this experience right now where there's a local um, sometimes comedian, like a comedian who doesn't really perform, I've never met him before, who has recently started to attack me online. But I mean, like, attack me in this way that seems insane, like telling me that I'm not a real woman and that I work for the government and that I don't deserve being on Netflix and people should ask and question why somebody like me as a white woman gets to be on a platform like that. I went to report him on Twitter and I happened to see all these other tweets that he had posted that I didn't see that say like, Kanye is right. Tell me why why would, what's the problem with hating Jews? Is there anything wrong with, you know, what's the real problem with hating Jews? And I was like, oh, Again, I am excused. And I thought there's obviously something wrong with this guy, right? And I don't know how to deal with this because clearly he is not well mentally or he's going through some kind of mental uh, uh, breakdown. And is it a black guy, black, white? It's a white, it's a white guy. guy. Yeah, white South African guy. Um, And so then I was like, before I saw those things, I haven't known how to deal with it because I thought, this is a person going through a mental health crisis. He's he's not being rational. And by the way, to tie it in, he also, okay, I can't, I don't think I can say this because I'm worried that, <laughs> the point is he's saying a lot of crazy right. things that are, that do not seem like. Yeah. And, and then I see there's a lot of anti-Semitism and I go, oh, there it is. And now I'm excusing the behavior of a person who's an anti-Semite, but I'm saying like, oh, no, he's got a mental health problem. I need to figure out how to deal with this in a sensitive way. But is it is it like are all racists and anti-Semites also having all all having a mental health problem? You know, what do we do with that? If I could just say this real fast, that Trump's really in America opened the can of mental illness excuse for mm. anti-Semitism, I think. Netanyahu, I can't say his name, sorry. Yes. Well, he was he was denouncing Benjamin. it and he was saying that Trump... What'd you say? Benjamin Netanyahu. David's on a first name basis. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, like... He was saying that Trump needs to really like address this. And it's interesting to me because I, th- I these are the conversations that I'm hearing in small circles yeah. is that they feel like... Black people feel like They'll ex- that Jewish people will excuse Trump, but not excuse co- black someone that's black. Mm, interesting. So that is the thing that is. But at this point, where Benjamin, not Netanyahu, I can't say this, that he is saying all all of a sudden he's calling out Trump 
may have a little bit of change in the tide of that direction. I don't know because I've, I have a number of Jewish friends who do like Trump and I've been waiting to well, hear them denounce him know, as much as they would Kanye. I don't like Trump or Netanyahu. Um, and, you know, I used to love Kanye. And now the problem is, <laughs> what am I supposed to do with all that music? That's like 70% of my listening is is Kanye. That's, that, that is my main problem with all of this. So, to be honest. so okay, maybe let me jump. Let me jump in because I think one, there's there's Kanye. So funny enough, right? Because remember, Kanye is blaming. He's not just saying whatever uh, or anti-Semitism things. He's blaming Jewish people for certain things, right? The contracts in the music industry, or his yes. contracts, or the rappers' contracts, the deals that are made, or people have whatever, 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 right? So there's a base, there's a foundation. It's a, it's a, it comes from the music industry. It comes from his fashion, whatever I guess thing. In and and then the deals that he was making, whether in fashion or music, where he feels like Jewish people have so much control, or they were controlling this, or they were forcing him or other people to do yada yada yada. But I think maybe a few weeks uh, or a few days after this, I went back and listened from his first album. Actually, the first two albums, like uh, the college dropout and the graduation, everything he's saying now, he does or he has kind of been saying it in his song. Mm-hmm. So if you think of Jesus Walks and the lyrics that I'm doing a song about Jesus, they won't even let me rap about Jesus. Or now he's blaring out that the contracts would say you can't pray or you can never mention Jesus on stage or you can't talk about God. So... For me, there's those two things, right? You've got Kanye, this producer, genius, musician, blah, blah, blah. Maybe designer. I don't know. I don't wear like Kanye shoes and clothes and whatever, you know. And then you've got, for me sitting here, for my mental health for the past couple of years, I stopped watching news. Like I cut my equivalent of cable TV in South Africa because the news were bullshit and propaganda. Right, mm-hmm. which is just when Cyril was becoming the president. So everything about him was just amazing and beautiful, and everyone else was just the devil and corrupt and evil. So I cut out the cable TV equivalent. Um, my favorite soccer teams, Arsenal and Kaiser Chiefs, were shit at the time, two three years ago. So literally, I was just watching the Grand Prix, and I was paying like almost eighty dollars a month or a thousand rand a month. So, yeah, around $60, $70 a month, which was just a waste of money for me. So, but I'm, I'm, I'm coming to now waking up and Kanye has said this, did that. So for me, I cut out stupid social media nonsense, consumption, news, you know, like I used to watch CNN religiously. I used to watch BBC religiously. I used to consume so much. Now you golf. Also just writing. I see you golfing. So now I walk four or five hours. I play golf two, three times a week if I can. And um, so my mental health, I started blocking Instagram. Who's wearing what? Who said what? Who did what? Like I'll arrive home and my wife will be like, did you hear someone did this? Or Beyonce said that or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. So for me, the Kanye thing, again, I woke up one day and 
there was this Kanye has been anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish people. They've canceled that contract. They've canceled this. They've canceled that. There's one interview I watched. I forget the guy on YouTube. The guy who wears a black suit, white shirt, tie, Jewish guy. Farrakhan? No, 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 no. He interviewed Kanye and the difference with him was he would stop him and go, you can't say that. Because yes. that's being anti. I'll try and find his name in the meantime while we're chatting, okay. right? So for me, it's one of the best interviews that I saw. As opposed to you wake up and Adidas has banned him or severed the contract or Balenciaga has cut this, that. So this guy would almost take him through. Kanye, you can't say that. You and I want the same thing. We want the best for a recording artist. Let's look at the contracts and see what's in there. da 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 but then every time Kanye goes off, the guy would even say, you you know, don't do that because I'm Jewish. I'm here. And you are saying Jews are doing this. Jews have put this in my contract. Jews are. And he would say it's a record company which has a name that has this contract that says one, two, three. But for Kanye, it's Jewish people. So it's kind of like South Africans when we sit and we go, white people did this or white people are racist right? Or white people stole our land. But where we sit today, I can go to Gilly and say she stole my land or she stole land from me or my grandparents. You but know I did, what I mean? David. I did. But, but, the, but there is that... Gilly, really, all this time I've been saying Gilly, you didn't No, it is me. Gilly. No, it is Gilly. He, David is, is um, wrong. It just came out. He oh, knows he's it. wrong. Gilly, can you put into really explain why you can't say things like that, why it is anti-Semitic? Because you're Jewish, you can put it in a way I can't put it. You know, uh, I think that it's it's the same way you can't blame... Sorry to put that pressure on you. <laughs> well, the way that I think about it is, you Sorry. know, an easy way for me to figure out how to express things is always to compare them through another prism of some kind, you know. And you know, bl- blaming Jewish people a whole people for somebody who did some, perhaps somebody wronged you in some way, you know, and then you say, oh, the person that robbed me, uh, it's, it's, was black. listen, you know, yeah, in November, my, a black man took, stole my cell phone. So does that war- now allow me to say as a white South African, does that warrant me blaming all black people? Yeah, like crime? black people are all cell phone thieves. Yeah. Correct. Okay. That's basically so what we're as, dealing with. And, and we know and we know what that leads to and what it has led to in the past, right? We know the kind of violence that's been visited on black people because they've been uh tarred with this brush that is that just has, is self-perpetuating. It continues to cause more violence. And that's what Jewish people have experienced. And I think that we're in this complex situation where we are now dealing with Kanye, who is a black man. And I think that the mistake that we make, at least the mistake I'm seeing being made from my perspective, and I've experienced it in South Africa, is that this idea that because Jewish people are often viewed as powerful minority, a powerful minority, it means that as a black person, you can't be racist towards Jewish people. It's almost seen like it's a, it's a black man being racist towards white people, which we, you know, we don't think is possible. The problem with a Jewish person is that the violence visited on Jewish people has been very real. 
And, you know, you, Marina, you posted a very interesting video that I ended up posting as well about um, understanding all of these tropes and all of these uh, these things that are said about Jewish people. Um, they seem like they're compliments. I have a joke about this in my set, you know, they seem, they seem like they're compliments. When you say Jewish people are rich and Jewish people control this or that, it seems like we're powerful. Jewish people are powerful and therefore you can't, uh, punch down on Jewish people. You can't uh, uh, make them weaker. They can't be a minority, right? The fact that that right. the idea that Jewish people are rich and powerful seems like something that protects Jewish people from violence. When in fact, that idea is what has brought Jewish uh, brought violence against yeah. Jewish people. It's as bad as any other racial slur, and it's not not taken seriously because it seems like we're in a powerful position. So, so this is where now, when you come... Thank you, yes. Sorry. So this is where when you come down to Kanye, then you go down to before he says what he says. Is he by himself in the room or is he with like 11 guys that are his entourage or is he with a white friend or a white Jewish business partner? And I think that's where Kanye's whole life and everything has gone sideways because he he's trying to make a certain point but what he's coming out of his mouth it's exactly like what um how Jill just described what it comes out as sounding like and pretty much now inciting um violence to some extent same as a white person saying i was robbed by a black person and then I appear with my wife and kids and then security starts harassing me or the police start harassing me because a black person just stole a cell phone a few minutes ago and I happen to be around. So it's, it's mostly then if you want to take it to a mental, whether it's mental illness or breakdown or I don't know Kanye's mental history. I know when the media says, oh, he's gone crazy again or he's crazy or if he says they made me go and check into rehab or whatever, right? Well, he's definitely, there's something off. <laughs> so, and and in that, if, so the, the guy was talking about Lex, Lex Friedman is the interview that I watched. Uh, mm, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, and because he's Jewish, I mean, it's over an hour where he literally tries to say to Kanye, you stop saying that. You can't say that. And it was literally like a few days, maybe a week after this whole current thing started, right? So it was still fresh in terms of what he said and what caused all the contracts to be cancelled. And then he was speaking to this guy, maybe he didn't trust the other media or whatever. I mean, he even tells this guy he doesn't trust him and he was quite taken back. So it's kind of still fresh from just from what started all this. So it doesn't now include now he loves Hitler and all this other shit that mm. you sort of watch that interview and you think the guy got through to him. And then three days later, you hear he just said he loves Hitler. And I'm like, OK. Yeah, he's, there's something really wrong. But there's also, I, you know, what's scary about this is I am having these conversations with people who don't understand what what Gilly just said. Gilly put it perfectly. You put it so perfectly because, uh, and, yeah. and like that thing I shared, it was from Sarah Silverman's mm. page about mm. 
there's really an ignorance about like it's kind of like like how I see it is when they talk about immigrants coming over to America and they think they're going to replace them, their jobs. And so people uh, oftentimes when you talk about Jews owning the media or having this power that like it's creating a division and a, and a fear of Jewish people that is real. And I do understand black people don't understand it because we get such negative, like we don't work, we don't do this. So we're, mm. we're always comparing, but you cannot negate what the other conversation has caused in the past. And no one ever said, like, it's like, it has to be repeated over how historically the Holocaust got started. Yeah. Was from these types of conversations. So No, I get, I, I'm sorry. I, I know I, sometimes I get so passionate about it because I feel like sometimes we don't look at the other as being our pain too. Because yeah. that, what happened to the Holocaust you look at Ukraine, you look at, it can happen to any group of people in this way, just from dialogue, very toxic, uninformed, ignorant yeah. dialogue. So, so I want to talk about, I, I have, and I do a joke about how Americans pronounce it apartheid, right? Which is apartheid mm. for us, Um so Marina, you know I'm talking about about when I talk about apartheid, right, or apartheid, which was the separation of blacks and whites and all the yeah. shit that happened in South Africa. So the guy who they would consider the architect of apartheid or apartheid in South Africa, Asia Ferfurt, he studied Hitler before starting apartheid or executing. So, for instance. He learned from Hitler that by killing people, he's making a mistake, right? And all the attention that it brought Hitler and his, eventually he's sort of um, been taken out he's of power mess. or whatever yeah. and followed. Yeah, right? Which is then he made a choice that in my apartheid system, here's what I'm going to do, but we're not going to kill or we're not going to mass kill black people, but we will mm. take them and put them in a smaller place, which is where the land thing comes in, right? So taking mm. black people from where they had their lands and farms and whatever and putting them in the townships, where now the houses were the little four-room house, which is like a bed, a bedroom, a kitchen, a lounge and a thing, and a smaller yard, because they will then explode amongst themselves because everybody started going, shit, I'm in this box. All I have is alcohol. Mm. Drink, drink, drink. Put them in this thing and just leave them. Which is literally was the thought behind apartheid or apartheid, right? So now today, if you look at South Africa today, where a black person will hijack me or will steal from me or my domestic worker or gardener might be the same person that steals from me or where we don't trust each other. If I have a deal about something, I don't want you to find out because you might want part of it. So if I have a business opportunity, I'd rather go to a white person because I think the other black guy is going to want to take it for steal it from me, right? So for me now, lately, in the past few years, repeatedly, I've said, 
apartheid is actually only starting to work now in the past few years because all that was done so many years ago and then we wake up one day and we're told Mandela is free, you guys can vote, apartheid is over. That shit is only now you realize that for a black person to ban a library because there's no water and they're protesting, we have a fucking problem in this country, mm. which is basically all over the townships. People wake up and bend down a mall because there's no electricity and they demand electricity. But now they've banned the fucking library. Schools are being broken into and banned and stole. So we are destroying infrastructure that's supposed to help us because we are angry about the one thing that no one did for us, right? So that mentality and the mental state of, and then going back into when someone like Kanye says they love Hitler, you know, we sit and we're like, fuck, when apartheid began, they they even studied how Hitler was doing what he was doing and then just kind of maybe fixed what they thought good, were his mistakes. This is such a good point. This is such a good point because, because this thing It's like they perfected and, and then, and then it's very hard for me, I have to say, to, to hear South Africans say something like Kanye is right or, or, you know, they maybe not say it out loud, but they're like, yeah, we know that thing about the Jews or whatever. I'm like, no, the thing that kills the Jews also was designed to kill you. It basically. Yes. Basically. But Just, we've never, thank you for putting it that way. Yeah. We've never looked at it that way. And and that's yeah. that's where the conversation we're missing each other. Yes. And uh I'm, I don't even know what makes you think of having this thing. I don't know. How did you guys No, you know, um um David, one thing that Marina in that video that you posted from Sarah Silverman's thing was the what the guy ended the video with is a very smart thing where he says um that that uh, the way that it, the way that people are victimized, right? The black person is made to look uh, weak and dangerous, and uh, I don't remember what the other things were, but like that—that's the perception that's painted of the black person in order to to and and then and then there's a how oh how do we deal with that person? Oh, we we push them down, we kill them, we we got to you know do something about that. The Jewish person is portrayed as uh, controlling. Uh, powerful and therefore is a threat. And we have very specific ideas of how we'd like to deal with a threat. And so both, right, what to do, what to do about a threat. So in both cases, it's just a different tactic for how we take that person down. That's right. That's right. But it's the same intent. It's the yes. same intent. Yeah. The intent is the, is, is supremacy. That's the intent. The intent White is supremacy, supremacy and, and, and yeah. to divide, division. A lot of times people cut me off. They don't want to hear it. But I'm like, you don't understand that you're being radicalized right now. You're continuing the conversation about division. Division will never help us. It will never help us. It will only feed supremacy. Anyway, on that positive note... <laughs> <laughs> we do have to we do have to get out this has been i mean like i could do another hour with you guys but i want to keep you i know it's late there anytime you both want to come back please come back this has been an powerful conversation a very necessary conversation to have so i thank you both for coming on 
David, just to answer your question real fast, and then I'm going to go to Gilly. Uh, I met her through Autumn Rowe, who's a very talented songwriter and producer. And she's just amazing. She's been on the podcast several times. And so she was like, you have to have her on your show, on your podcast. Well, not Autumn, so, right? That's she's South African. No, no Autumn, Autumn is American. from America. Uh, yeah. She came to do, yes. she was and the guest so, of honor uh, at, a, at, a, at a very big women's uh, Jewish fundraising event. And I was emceeing the event. And that's how we met. But there we go again. Jewish people again. <laughs> <laughs> autumn, autumn so, is Jewish and black. Is, that's that's actually how this all intersects. Ah, it gets it gets more interesting, doesn't it? Not twelve percent mm-hmm. Jewish or twelve percent black. Just to, just oh. to close out. Also, TB said he's gone, but he said in in the U.S. Jews are conditionally white. We are only white if they want something from us. Otherwise, we aren't white. Have had that happen to my family, especially in the South. At, you, know, in, you know, at least Jews from Europe and in Russia. So you know what I always say. I always say, okay. you know, in the argument about whether or not Jewish people are white, I always say, ask Hitler. I mean, say what you want about that guy, but that guy knew his whites. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Gibby, I mean Gilly, <laughs> Gibby. I'm looking at TB and Gilly. So Gilly, tell our listeners where they can find you and okay. a friends like us. And Fine. thank you for being here. Fine. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Please don't send me anti-Semitic uh, threats. That would be great. Um, on both of those platforms, I am Gillog, G-I-L-L-O-G. That's my handle, G-I-L-L-O-G. OG Gillog, kind of like Kellogg's. And on Facebook, I'm Gilly After Comedy. If anybody is still using Facebook, the platform, I'm stalling. Um, with friends like us, Marina, David, uh, you will be able to have a very measured discussion about the intersectionality of Judaism and whiteness, and also maybe find a few million dollars in your couch. And that is what I wish for all of us. <laughs> Perfect. That was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> David Cow from the Black Only Comedy Show. <laughs> so my name is David Cow, or rather David Mojalifam Zwandile Cosmos Cow. Those are my full names. <laughs> so David Cow won on Twitter because there's a Japanese illustrator named David Gao who took the David Gao handle before me and the davidgao.com before me. Wow. Right? That's why it's David Gao one on Twitter. And then David Gao on Instagram and then David Gao comedian on TikTok and Facebook and YouTube I don't even remember. Probably David Gao comedian also on uh, what's that Snapchat thing? I haven't opened that app in like two <laughs> years or three it. years. <laughs> Snapchat, and TikTok, leave it alone. You're good. There must be something new somewhere. David Gao, I guess, on LinkedIn. And with friends like us, soon we're going to be doing comedy shows and comedy tours together. Mm. And then <gasps> yes. we can turn all of this into proper comedy. With with all the, uh, what do you want to call it? With with all the mindfulness and so mm-hmm. for me, when people ask me, do people have you ever been 
has someone ever been offended by you or have you been attacked? I always say, if I can't tell the same joke when you're in the room, then I don't tell it. So if I've told a joke about the president or Jacob Zuma or Julius Malema, I would tell the same jokes if they're in the room, right? That's my measure of, is this offensive or not? If, If you can laugh at the joke, then my whole thing is to make people laugh. It's not to make a point or to, you know, pick a subject because Kanye is in the news. I'm going to tell jokes about Kanye. If I have nothing to say about Kanye, I have nothing to say about Kanye. But if I do, I'm going to tell it even when he's there. I mean, he might go crazy on me, but... Well, this has been... Thank you. That was profound, too. Mm. Thank you so much. This is like 16 years later. So, you know, Black's only... What, 18 years? Did I not do good? How come I haven't been back? So Black's only is 18 years this year, and you were there literally like 16 years ago. Oh, 16 years ago. Marina, I, I haven't been fresh. on Black's only anyway, but I, I I would then refer to the title of the show. Because it's Black's only. <laughs> because there's one white at a time. It's, yeah, there's always one, one honorary white. white. Yes, one white at a time. That's, That's like our policy. podcast, actually. You're our white. For, you're our white for one, the month. One white at a time. <laughs> and David is our man for the month. We call it our monthly cycle. Aww, oh, period. wow. <laughs> Am I like your period? Yeah. Am I like your period? Today's a heavy flow. Yeah. It's a real heavy flow. <laughs> now, Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And all things Friends Like Us, please follow us on all platforms. And with Friends Like Us, you can have conversations across the world globally and find that you have one thing in common. And that is that a threat to injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Check us out. Check us out.